Now our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. If you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 25, and I'm going to make a couple of remarks as we read the scriptures this morning at various points in this section. Beginning at verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Now I want to pause here just for a moment and make this statement. For this reason, this is the reason why it has to be a faith-grace system. For this reason, the reason why it has to be a faith-grace system is so that the eternal promises can be guaranteed. Do you see that? This is why it has to be a faith-grace system, so the eternal promises can be guaranteed. If it's a work system, or if it's by law, it can't be guaranteed Because the eternal promises could not be contingent upon us completely obeying works or the law. So therefore, it has to be a faith-grace system, which is what the grammar is actually saying here. This is why it has to be a faith-grace system. Now, reading on in verse 16, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him Whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now watch verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. I want to talk about that just for a second. The oldest manuscripts that we have in existence today read, he contemplated or considered his own body. The later manuscripts that were later in time said that he did not contemplate or consider his body. So if you are reading a New American Standard or an NIV or an NEB Bible, you'll notice that he did. He did contemplate his own body. In other words, he thought that through when he was told that his wife was going to have a baby. He actually thought that through. But if you're reading the King James Version, it says he did not think about this. Now, how do we determine what the actual original reading was by the next verse? Notice verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. So verse 20 would suggest, in contrast to him thinking about his dead body that could not produce a child or his wife couldn't produce a child, he trusted in the promise of God. He grew strong in faith, and the text says he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And I want to just pause there again and bring this point out. When you are strong in grace faith, when you actually believe it's not my works and not by keeping the law that makes me right with God, but you're strong in trusting totally and solely in the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the text says you bring glory to God. 
That's exactly what that text says. You bring glory to God. That's what Abraham did. He grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. Now verse 21, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgression was raised because of our justification. What a powerful theological text of scripture, and may God add his blessing to the reading of it and the exposition of it later. Will you join with me please in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today to say thank you for this amazing, amazing package of grace. We thank you for the system that you've designed that will save us from all of our sins. We know we could not ever save ourselves from them. We could not ever earn heaven. We could not merit a relationship with you. We're so far short of thy glory. We realize that. So we thank you today for thy great grace. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you had a plan that would include us. We marvel at that, Lord. Who in the world are we that you would be mindful of us? But we thank you for it. We want to pray today for the sick. We pray that you would grant them healing. We want to pray today for the discouraged and the depressed that you would grant them cheer. We pray for those that are living in darkness. You would grant them light. We pray for those that are at war with themselves. We pray that they would experience thy peace, and we pray for the lost, grant them salvation. We pray for those that are grieving today because of a lost loved one. We think of the Dixon family, Lord, and the loss of Al's son. We are grateful he's a believer, but we just pray you give them supernatural peace that passes all understanding. Lord, we ask that you work in our lives. Grant us all understanding. Grant us joy. Grant us fruitfulness. Grant us thy blessings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am convinced, as I was taught years ago by Mr. Miles specifically, that the greatest counseling book in the world is the Word of God. In fact, I'd go so far as to say this. I'll just get this off my chest. I honestly think if people took the Word of God seriously and developed their relationship with Jesus Christ, they'd put counselors out of business. That's what I really believe. There are counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists, and they go all over the map in all kinds of different areas, and oftentimes don't get at the heart of the issue. And not long ago, a bunch of them were polled. And a lot of them were polled, and they were asked, well, what do you think the most significant question in life is? What's the most significant question that a human being can ask himself or herself? And here were their responses. What are my values? Am I happy? What is worth suffering for? Where am I going in life? And... Why am I here? Those are thought-provoking questions. I don't think that's the most important question of life, though. I think the most important question of life is, what would I have to do to have all of my sins forgiven so when I die, I go to heaven? I don't think you can find any question more serious than that, more profound than that. What is it that can save me from all of my sins? 
What question is more important than that? Now, the man that God singled out to give a careful answer to that question was the Apostle Paul. Jesus Christ specifically revealed to Paul the answer to what a person must do to have all of their sins forgiven and to receive the righteousness of God. And here's what Paul said, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is through Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him. Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. What an amazing message. What a spectacular message. If a person will believe in Jesus Christ, he'll be set free. He will be forgiven of all his or her sins, given a righteousness of God that guarantees them they'll go to heaven. Now, you would think that people in this world would say, hallelujah to that. Wow, what a message. You would think people would say, praise God. But it didn't happen when Paul preached it. When Paul preached that wonderful grace message to those people in Antioch, the religious people, they were proud of their works and they were proud of their attempts to keep the law. They were proud of their religion. So they persecuted Paul and Barnabas. They chased them right out of town. See, that really is the problem with religious people. They're proud. They're proud. And most of them think they can measure up to the standard of God's righteousness by their own works because they're proud of themselves. And most of them think by their efforts to keep the Old Testament all, they're going to make it. And if you don't believe that, just go to some religious person you know and tell them the only way that you can have your sins forgiven and have a relationship with God is by faith in Jesus Christ and see where that gets you. The biggest enemy against the justification by faith message is the pride of people. People are proud of their human works. They're proud of their religious works. They're proud of their traditions. They're proud of their religious law keeping. They're proud of their religious rituals. And here comes Paul, who blasts that thinking all to bits. And what Paul does in this text of scripture is he says, no one, no one will ever have their sins forgiven no one will have the righteousness of God by keeping religious laws or works because God will only calculate one as righteous who believes in Jesus Christ. That's it. This is a non-works system of salvation. You will discover most people don't believe that. I mean, if you get behind the scenes, most people don't believe that. Most people believe they're right with God by church works, Old Testament law, keeping, baptism, religious rituals, catechism, following traditions that have been invented by men. I mean, this is supposedly the Advent Sunday that's been invented by men, and they'll tell you this is a real special Sunday, and that's part of really being something special with God. I mean, that's religious talk. And religion is the broad way to eternal destruction. It's faith in Jesus Christ that's the narrow way, the only way of salvation, and few there be who find it or believe it. Now, Paul knew what he was up against when he wrote this section. So he basically develops four critical themes. And the first one is that it is a faith-credited righteousness that we get. It's a faith-credited righteousness. No works in it. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It's not credited. 
It is not something that we deserve. It is a judicial calculation of faith credit that gives us righteousness. The second theme he develops is works guilt. Our works will establish we're guilty. That's what they'll do. The third theme that he develops is Old Testament law condemnation. The Old Testament law will condemn every one of us. And the fourth theme that he develops here is grace salvation. Those are the four themes that Paul has to develop because he's up against the religious world. They just don't want to accept grace. And there are four critical theological points that he makes here. First of all, God's promise of future eternal blessing was not via Old Testament law. It was by a faith-credited righteousness. Look at what verse 13 says. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now the promise that Paul specifically has in mind is the promise of the Messiah who would come through Abraham's family, who would one day take over the world and therefore permit Israel to share in that kingdom with him. He has all of that in mind when he says that promise. And what Paul's saying here is this promise that God made to Abraham that through him would come this seed and eventually he will take over the world and share that with the nation Israel. That never came by Old Testament law. That's what his point is. And that never came by any works. It was a credited faith righteousness that God gave him. The Old Testament law had nothing to do with the promise that God gave to Abraham. His works had nothing to do with the promise that God gave to Abraham. That's the point Paul's making here. And they couldn't have had anything to do with Abraham for three reasons. First of all, the Old Testament law wasn't even given when the promise was made. It would be about 500 years later when this law would be given. So the righteousness that was credited to him when he believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness had nothing to do with the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law wasn't even in existence. Secondly, Abraham was a sinner by his works. We already went over that. He doubted God. He disbelieved God. He lied. He got his wife to lie. He committed adultery. So this promise that one day you're going to have this righteousness that will be in your family and you'll be reigning with the one that comes through your line couldn't possibly be based on works. And thirdly, God's word says Abraham was justified by faith. In Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's works or the Old Testament law had nothing to do with the promise of righteousness that would come through a future descendant, it came by faith. And when Abraham believed, it was credited to him as righteousness. His works had nothing to do with trying to keep the Old Testament law. In fact, James says if you break just one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say there's no such thing as a moderate or partial sinner. We're all sinners. We all have that sin smell to us. We've all broken the law of God. We're all sinners. You think about this. God has the record of everything that we've ever done in our life. Just roll that through your mind. He has the record of every failure. He has the record of every sin. He has total, complete record of what we did before we believed. He has the total, complete record of what we've done since we believed. Do you really think 
that God's promise of us going to heaven is going to be determined by our works or trying to keep the Old Testament law when he has those records? Then you have to ask, well, why did Jesus Christ die? He died to give us a righteousness we could not earn, a righteousness we don't have, a righteousness we don't deserve. And when we believe in him, we're saved. That's the only way we can be saved. We can't be saved by ourselves. So there's his first theological point. His second point is God's grace promise is invalidated if it's by the Old Testament law. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Now the conjunction for that begins verse 14 explains what happens to the grace faith message if you try to mix in works or Old Testament law. If you try to mix in works or Old Testament law, there are two realities. Number one, the grace-faith system is made void. You void it. Cannot all, which means you basically say it's empty, it's of no effect. The point is, if one thinks that the Old Testament law or their works can save them, they're basically saying to the grace-faith system, God's design, it's of no value to us. It's of no effect. And the second reality is the whole system's nullified. That's what he says in verse 14, and the promise is nullified. And that word nullifies a favorite of Paul. It means to make something invalid, inoperative, to abolish something. And his point is, if somebody thinks they can be right with God by the Old Testament law, they completely dismantle and abolish the grace-faith-promise system. Now that's important. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the vast majority of religious people in the world... The vast majority of religious people are actually telling God, your system of grace salvation means nothing. Your system that you've designed where we believe in Jesus Christ and we receive righteousness that gives us the right to go to heaven, it doesn't mean anything to us. No, we'd rather try to save ourselves by keeping the Sabbath. Now that means something to us. We'd rather try to save ourselves by baptism. That means something, boy. We'd rather try to save ourselves by keeping a few of the Old Testament law. Let's take those Ten Commandments. We'll keep them. We'd rather try to save ourselves by our own works. We would rather try to save ourselves by our own morality. We would rather try to save ourselves by the golden rule. We'll do to others like we would like have done to us or by our own philanthropic activity. When we think like that, we are voiding out the whole system of God. People who think like that are attacking the grace-faith system of salvation. They're invalidating the whole system. It's not just a matter here of religious difference of opinion. They're attacking the whole system God's designed. That's the way God saw it. That's the way Paul saw it. You know, we didn't have our men's prayer breakfast Friday because of, you know, the crazy shoppers that are out there after the day after Thanksgiving. So we, we stay out of that restaurant on that day. But let's say that you're a father and you say to your son, I'm going out shopping today, son, and I'm going to give you a free gift. I'm going to bring home for you a free gift and I'm going to give you a brand new bicycle. I got this idea from Dr. Thomas Constable, by the way. I'm just perhaps adding a little color to it, but he used this illustration. I thought it was a good one. So your son is excited, man. 
He's waiting for you to get home. He's waiting for you to come home and give him that new bicycle. And then when you get home, the father says, well, now you have to obey to get it. He would say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You just completely nullified what you said you were going to do. You told me you were going to go out and get me a free grace gift of a bicycle and you were going to give it to me. And now you come home and you tell me you're adding to that, that I have to obey to get it. That's exactly what people do who want to add works to the grace of God. They're basically nullifying the whole promise. They're nullifying the whole system. And Paul says, that is not right. You start tampering with the grace of God, it's a dangerous thing. Which brings us to his third point, God's condemnatory wrath is produced by the law, not grace salvation. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. Understand this point. No works of the Old Testament law can make a sinner righteous in the sight of God. There is not a person on this earth who has ever kept the Old Testament law. There is not a person on this earth who's ever kept the Ten Commandments with the exception of when the Lord Jesus Christ was here. In other words, no one has kept the law to the point where they're going to get before the Lord and God will say, hey, you're just as righteous as me. And this isn't the only place Paul says that. In Romans 3, he says, we maintain a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He writes in Galatians, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, But through faith in Christ Jesus, even we've believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. He also said in Galatians, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. God's word cannot be any clearer on this point. You cannot ever be right with God by trying to keep the Old Testament law. So then someone who's thinking would say, well, then what's the purpose of the law? Well, there are five statements Paul makes, four of them in this book. The purpose of the law was, first of all, to shut proud mouths. Some man gets before God and dares to say they kept the law. God said, fine, let's call up your account. We'll call up my law and the mouth will be shut. Secondly, the purpose of the law was to establish guilt. The law shows that every one of us are guilty before God. Thirdly, the law was given to establish that we have sinned. It establishes our sin. It shows that all of us are sinners. Fourthly, the law was given to show that we deserve the wrath of God. And finally, the law was given to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, that law was designed to box us in to the point where we realize, look, I can't get out of my sin problem myself. I need to trust in somebody who can get me out of this. And that trust is in Jesus Christ. And according to Romans 4.15, that Old Testament law shows every one of us that we deserve the wrath of God. That Old Testament law. So let's pick a commandment and see if it works. Let's go to the last commandment. Commandment number 10 of the famous Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet anything that your neighbor has. So that includes then in that list, house or maid or person who has servants or their donkeys, or their animals, or their vehicles, or anything that belongs to the neighbor. Now, the moment you read that, you shall not covet anything your neighbor has. Can't you be honest enough to say, you know, I probably have missed that a couple times. 
You ever driven by somebody's house and thought, man, I wish I had that? Just that moment where, where it just went through your mind where you weren't real thankful for what the Lord had given you, but you just thought, I wish I had that. Or ever seen one who has a higher position that you hold in management and say, I wish I had that position. I'm not real excited about the one God's given me, but I'd like that one. Ever seen some good-looking husband or wife that I wish I had them? Ever heard of a billionaire with servants and you said, I wish I was like that? Ever seen someone driving a car and wish, man, I wish that one was mine? Ever wish you had something someone else had, their athleticism, their academic prowess, their income, their success? They don't even have to be our neighbor. That's truth. We are guilty of coveting people we don't even know. We can just drive by the house of somebody we don't even know and covet what they have. If we don't have this in writing, you shall not covet, how would we ever know that's wrong? We would spend our life coveting what other people have and striving for it and never be thankful for what we have and think, well, that's just the normal way to live life. But when God's word says you shall not covet, it shows every one of us we haven't hit the mark. Which brings us to his third point, God's grace system has always been by faith, verses 16 to 22. God's grace-faith system must come by faith and not works and not Old Testament law. Faith is what links to grace. Don't ever forget that. Faith links to grace. Works link to law. Faith links to grace. And the preposition that begins verse 16, for this reason sets the stage for Paul's last point. And here's what he's saying here by this grammar. He's saying, on account of the fact that righteousness cannot come by keeping the Old Testament law, on account of the fact that the law brings about wrath, it must come by grace through faith. Faith, grace is contrary to works and law, and on account of the fact that the law brings about the wrath of God and shows us where he violated the law of God, it must be a grace-faith system to save us from our sins. Very logical, deep doctrine here Paul's developing. And there are two ways he drives that point home, and the first way is the illustration of Abraham. Now, Abraham is a big name to almost every religion in the world. He's mentioned in Islam in the Quran 188 times. Even the Muslims think pretty highly of the name of Abraham. He's mentioned by the Jews as considered their father, the father of them, the father of Judaism. That's what they think. And he's considered to be a relative of all those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can't get a bigger name than Abraham when it comes to this matter of a relationship with God. And Paul brings out three important truths in the illustration. First of all, future promised blessings to Abraham were by God's grace. He says in verse 16, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, 
so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. How could sinful man like Abraham be given a promise that in him all nations of the world would be blessed? How could a sinful man like Abraham be given a promise that through him would come the Messiah? How could that be? Because we know he lied. He told his wife to lie. We know that he had doubts. We know he was an adulterer. So how in the world could God promise this to Abraham? By grace. By grace. How can God promise any one of us heaven? Man, I'll tell you what. How can he promise me heaven? How can he promise you heaven? We're not better than Abraham here. In fact, Abraham's probably better than most of us. God knows the times we've failed him, so how could he promise us heaven? By grace. The words of Donald Gray Barnhouse are powerful on this point. The promise came to Abraham, I will bless you. And in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. But Lord, Abraham might have said, suppose I get out of your will. God says, I'll bless you. Abraham might say, well, Lord, suppose my posterity should become idolaters. God still replies, I'll make of you a great nation. And again, Abraham might question, but Lord, suppose my descendants should crucify your son. God says, I'll bless you. We look at all the record and say, Lord... Suppose that Abraham becomes a liar and teaches his wife to lie and breaks whatever conditions there are to his place in the covenant. God says, I'll bless you. We ask, but suppose his grandson Jacob becomes a crook. God says, I'll bless you. We ask again, but suppose his greatest son David becomes an adulterer and murderer. God says, I'll bless you. In a voice that is reduced to trembling, we ask, but why, Lord? And the answer comes, because I'm God Who will through my servant one day write, if we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. And all we can say is, but Lord, this is grace without merit. And the Lord will reply, yes, this is indeed unmerited grace. Future fulfilled promises for any one of us demands God's grace. The second truth that's brought out is sovereign foreknowledge of Abraham's future demanded grace. Verse 17, as it is written, I, father of many nations, I've made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Don't miss what's said here. God said, I knew the future of Abraham and I told Abraham the future before he even had faith. God promised to bless Abraham before he was even counted or calculated as righteous. I mean, Genesis 12, 1 to 3 occurs about 10 years before Genesis 15, 6. God tells him, this is the land I'm going to give you. Then about 10 years later, Abraham believed God. It was counted unto him for righteousness. How could God promise to do so much for an unbeliever who is dead in trespasses and sins? How could he do that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, the salvation of God, the future promises of God, are not based on works. They've always been based on grace. The fact that God foreknows all of us, he foreknows us, he knows our sins, proves our salvation cannot possibly be by our works. It has to be by his grace. And that's Paul's argument. And his third truth is, Abraham's human condition demanded God's grace be solely by faith. 
verses 18 to 20. There are four important facts that are brought out about Abraham's salvation. First of all, Abraham had faith that believed God's word. Verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. He believed that. He believed that. You want to see a great definition of faith? I'll give you one out of the book of Acts. Back up just four or five pages to Acts chapter 27. Back up to Acts chapter 27. I'll show you a great definition of faith. In Acts 27 and verse 25, here's Paul's statement of faith. Here's what it is. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I've been told. There's faith. You believe exactly what God said. There's a great definition of faith. You take God at his word. You believe God's word. Abraham based what he believed on the word of God. He didn't base it on himself. When God told him he would produce a progeny when he was 100 years old, he said, well, I believe God. He didn't ask for a sign, didn't ask for a feeling. He just took the word of God seriously and literally. Why should you believe that your faith in Jesus Christ will save you from all of your sins and guarantee you heaven? That's what God's word says. That's why you should believe. Secondly, Abraham had a faith that did not trust in his dead works. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. Now, Abraham thought this thing through. And that's what that Greek text would indicate here. In other words, when Abraham was told at 100 years old, your wife Sarah, who's nearly 90, is going to have a baby, Abraham thought about this. He thought about this and he said, man, this can't come through us. I mean, it can't come through our works. I mean, I consider my body to be half dead. But the text said he never wavered in faith. He couldn't trust in himself, but he could trust in the promise of God. Thirdly, Abraham had a faith that trusted in the life promise of God. Verses 20 to 21, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. I mean, Abraham grew stronger and stronger in his faith in the promises of God. And ladies and gentlemen, it is the word of God and the promises of God that will strengthen your faith. It's not religious mumbo jumbo. It's not going to all these little counselors or seminars. That won't strengthen your faith. The promises of God, the word of God will strengthen your faith. And the more you know them, and the more you believe them, and the more you trust them, the stronger you'll be. And fourthly, Abraham had a faith that God calculated him as being righteous. Verse 22, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. This was a faith system. Abraham realized, my works can't do this. There is no law in existence then, so that isn't going to do it. It's God giving me a calculated righteousness that guarantees all of these things. Now, Paul could have stopped it right there. But he has one more way he wants to prove his point. He wants to make an application to us. So he says in verse 23, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake. Notice the pronoun, personal pronoun, our sake. Also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, 
who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now, don't miss these verses. Don't miss the conjunction now that starts verse 23. This is not just a nice little theological story about Abraham. Paul is saying this is how a person is justified. This is how a person gets into a right relationship with God, gets the righteousness of God that will guarantee them everlasting life. It is a credited righteousness that is given when they believe in Jesus Christ, which is the same kind of righteousness that was calculated to Abraham. And there are five very important theological applications Paul makes. First of all, righteousness that saves is by God's judicial calculation and crediting. You have to have God in a court calculate us as being righteous and impute to us the righteousness of his son. We have to have that credited righteousness to be saved. Secondly, righteousness that saves is by believing that God saves one who believes in Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 24, who believe in him. Justification is by faith. Understand this. That's the only way God will save anybody. That's the only way. He won't save a person through works of religion, and he won't save the person through law-keeping or whatever else a person dreams up that they think they're going to somehow equal the righteousness of God. God says, there's one way. One way I'll justify people. It's by faith in my son. Thirdly, Righteousness that saves believes Jesus Christ was delivered up for us. Verse 25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. He did not die for himself. He came to this earth and he died for us. He died for our sins. Fourthly, righteousness that saves believes that Jesus Christ was delivered because of our sins. Our sins put him on that cross. And finally, Righteousness that saves believes Jesus Christ's resurrection proves our righteousness. There's a sad atheistic skeptic who actually went through Moody Bible Institute. I'm not going to name him because he's not worth naming in the pulpit here. But I recently, this past week, watched an interview with him, and it was one of those podcasts where they were discussing trying to make mockery of Jesus. And he's become quite a scholar in his field. And they were making mockery of Jesus, and they said, well, we can't deny Jesus existed because all history points to the fact that he existed. And we also probably can't deny, this is the way they worded it, we probably can't deny he was crucified because the Romans were crucifying everybody at that time. So that was certainly within the realm of what would be a possibility that he would have been crucified, but it's that resurrection. Now these are two atheistic philosophers and skeptics, and here's what they said. It's that resurrection, though, because if he were actually raised from the dead... If you count the number of people that have lived in the world since that first century, he would be the only person out of 50 billion, out of 50 billion that would have done that. That's the point. I'm thinking, I wish I would have been there. 
That is the point. He is the only one out of 50 billion who was raised from the dead. And the reason he was raised from the dead was to prove that once we believe on him, this judicial justification declaration has taken place in the heavenlies. That's what Paul says right here. God's salvation is grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's a gift package. And God isn't going to offer you this gift package and then say, oh, by the way, if you will obey, I'll give it to you. It's a gift package. You get it whether or not you choose to obey. So here's the question. Are you going to let your stinking pride stand in the way of believing in Jesus Christ? Do you really think that God has developed this grace salvation package so you could trust in you? Humble yourself. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God will give you his son's righteousness and he will give you everlasting life. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you can settle that right where you sit. Just invite him to be your Savior. You talk to God yourself on this. It's personal and private. Our Father, we go down through this passage of Scripture. What we certainly are just forced to do is just say thank you. Thank you so much for grace. In Jesus' name, amen.